Well, let's head overseas now. We'll begin in Britain. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's office says he and Treasury Chief Rishi Sunak will be fined by police for breaching COVID-19 regulations, their own COVID-19 regulations, following allegations of lockdown parties at government offices. Johnson's wife, Kerry Johnson, will also be fined. The, quote, Partygate scandal has seen dozens of politicians and officials investigated over allegations that the government floated its own pandemic restrictions. But first, as the war in Ukraine enters a second phase with Russia apparently amassing troops in the east of the country to attempt a new push at grabbing what is now Ukrainian territory, a senior British defense minister says all possible options are on the table for the West's response if Russian forces use chemical weapons in Ukraine. Armed Forces Minister James Happy, or Heapy rather, says neither the UK nor the Ukrainian government have been able to confirm reports that a chemical weapon may have been used in the besieged city of Mariupol. We know that uh, there are reports of the use of chemical weapons. Uh, we have not been able to verify those ourselves. And indeed, the Ukrainian system, uh, as you've seen from President Zelensky, uh, are only referring to the fact that there are reports they themselves haven't yet been able to confirm to us that they have been used. Meantime, Ukrainian President Zelensky urged the EU to step up economic sanctions against Russia, arguing the Kremlin feels it can continue the invasion of Ukraine because of signals from some European nations. Well, to discuss all of this, joining me now is Garrett Martin. He's a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service at American University and the co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center there. Uh, Professor Martin, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. So as we see what appears to be a second phase of this war in Ukraine, how would you assess so far the ability of, uh, of Ukraine's partners, so to speak, the West, in other words, to stick together through this so far? Well, I think so far it, it's been very impressive, the abilities of the West to maintain a united front, because it was not a given before the conflict started, because there had been previous periods of tension, and also because of the specter of different levels of dependency amongst uh, European partners on Russian gas and oil, that raised a number of question marks. And I think the strength of the reaction has been very impressive. I, I think where it becomes more possibly difficult down the line is if this war really becomes a quagmire, if it continues for many, many months, and we get into the winter months, there's going to be a real question mark at the ability and the resilience of, this sort of, uh, of, the, of the European front. Because we are seeing even today, I gather that um, the uh, German foreign minister was planning a trip to Kiev, uh, and that was rejected by the Ukrainians themselves as sort of a message of, of displeasure towards Germany right now. Is that fair? Well, I think there's certainly long been a, a, a suspicion or a concern about the degree to which the Germans in particular put economics over geopolit- you know, geopolitics that they were willing really to forgive Russia to a large degree because of the fact that they had close energy connections. And so there's still, I think, this veil of suspicion about the abilities of, of Germany to maintain this front. Uh, I think it's not entirely fair. I mean, we have seen some significant changes in German foreign policy in the last two months. The, the commitment to double defense spending, I think, is significant. Uh, the number of sanctions that have been imposed. But I still think there's a question mark amongst many of the partners because of Germany's past history. In terms of where Russia sits in all this, uh, clearly its initial aims in this conflict have not been, have not been achieved. Uh, it's facing sanctions that I don't think anyone expected would be as fast and as furious as they have been. But Russia appears to have settled in a bit now to this. Uh, is that the impression you're getting or is this 
Is this more smoke and mirrors than reality on the ground, do you think, in Russia? I think it's, it's incredibly difficult to try and decipher the exact intentions of Vladimir Putin and the people around him. Uh, there's certainly a suspicion that they're trying to spin and they're trying to argue that their goal all along was really to consolidate their um, interest around the Donbass area. Uh, that doesn't seem to be very consistent with the large assault that was being planned against Kiev in the early stages of the conflict. Uh, I think there's certainly an attempt by Putin at home to try and spin this and to try and frame this as, as a victory. It's also possible, you know, Russia's military has not performed very well. It has shown significant challenges in terms of logistics and supply chains. It is possible that it might improve its performance as the conflict continues. How are the Americans sitting with this? We saw some pretty astounding inflation numbers today. Clearly, uh, the war in Ukraine, the sanctions themselves are having an effect to some extent on on the bottom line for a lot of American consumers. How long is Joe Biden able to hold this line uh, with pressures at home, do you think? Well, I think, you know, that, that, that's a difficult question. I, I think in some ways, I think that, that that's, that's separate. I, I think, you know, the United States is not was not exposed to the same degree as European partners in terms of the sanctions. There's not the same depth of investment and mutual trade between the Europeans and Russians than there is between the Americans and the Russians. So I think he's able to maintain the, the United Front on sanctions. I think it's maybe the, the concern is the extent to which domestic problems at home might lead, first of all, to a uh, you know, bad result in the midterm elections. And if you know, lose either the control of the Senate or the House, does that reduce his margin of maneuver on the foreign policy front? Because we have seen the impact to some extent of the war in Ukraine, we think, in the French first round of the presidential elections, where one of the concerns, of course, that Marine Le Pen was bringing up, the far-right leader uh, was bringing up, was the impact of those sanctions on the bottom line for consumers in France. And it seems to have gained some traction against uh, President Emmanuel Macron, who's obviously very much uh, been near the forefront of this effort to isolate Russia. Yes, I, I think it's it's definitely was a tactical approach by Marine Le Pen, a way to deflect from the coziness or the complacency that herself and her party have shown towards Russia in the past. I mean, there was certainly an interesting anecdote that back in February and March, uh, her party had to discreetly shelve a number of leaflets because they had a picture of Marine Le Pen shaking hands with Vladimir Putin uh, very prominently. I think the focus on the impact of the sanctions has been a smart way, if I may, for Marine Le Pen to deflect from her coziness with Russia. But it's also been consistent with the other main message that she's tried to pursue in this campaign so far is the emphasis on cost of living, on the declining purchasing power of ordinary French people. It's a message that resonates because there are real impacts on the pocketbook for ordinary French. But it's also because five years ago, the economic program was always viewed as the Achilles heel of Marine Le Pen and her party. So I think it's also, it's been a smart campaign so far to accentuate that element. As you look forward, where do you see, I mean, clearly there's going to be a presidential runoff. The, the final vote will be in a few weeks or less, actually. Uh, where do you see the, the trouble ahead for this unified front against Russia? And what do you think it may mean on the ground in Ukraine over the next few months? Uh, I think the, the the trouble, as maybe alluded to, is, is is if this conflict really becomes bogged down, if 
you know, we get to, as I mentioned earlier, if we get to the situation where we have a harsh winter and then suddenly this pressure of Ru- by Russia on the sort of supply of gas and, and oil to European countries, especially the ones that are the most vulnerable, because the key element here is not all EU states have high degrees of dependency, but some of them do. And so you can imagine that Russia would try to adopt a bit of a divide and rule approach. I think the second element is if there is any significant escalation by Russia, the use of chemical weapons. I mean, there's been allegations so far. We don't know if they're accurate. But if there's a significant escalation in the atrocities pursued by Russia, are we going to start to see varying or variegated levels of pressure by public opinion to become more involved? And I think that's where you could imagine that there would be some tension within the West. Because certainly uh, President Biden has made comments that would suggest that there are red lines, although he hasn't come out and said it. Well, I think you've got to be very careful. I mean, there are precedents of red lines being claimed and then being ignored soon after. I mean, we can remember what happened with President Obama and the war in Syria in 2013, the use of chemical weapons by um, so that against his own people. And there was a sudden change of mind. You know, there was a planned retaliation and that never happened. So I think you've got to be careful with credibility of making promises that you don't you can't actually follow through. Uh, it's very clear for the moment that the American public and most of the European publics would not really support any major use of Western troops in the conflict. Uh, even the idea of a no-fly zone, I think, is viewed as potentially dangerous and, and could lead to sort of significant escalation. So the Biden administration for the moment has been very careful about being quite upfront, about communicating clearly their intentions and their information. And so I think they would be wise, in my view, to continue doing so. I'm speaking with Garrett Martin, a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service of American University and the co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center. After this, we're going to change gears, head to England, head to the UK, uh, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson found himself in an unenviable position today. That's next. I'm back with Garrett Martin, senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service of American University and the co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center. Uh, Professor Martin, you've written about Partygate, quote unquote. There was a resolution today, or at least a big step in the police investigation into Partygate. Uh, For listeners who aren't familiar with it, what was the story here? uh, The prime minister is accused of having broken his own COVID rules to attend parties at his residence, 10 Downing Street. Exactly. I think you've got to keep in mind here with this story, two different timelines. So there's a timeline of allegations when rules were flouted. Uh, most of the incidents being investigated in number 10, sort of the prime minister's office and the, you know, the, the, government, the support offices around him, uh, there were probably about 12 or 16 incidents, depending on the investigation, that were alleged to have happened between the spring of 2020 and the spring of 2021, when some of the harshest restrictions were in place in the UK. So those are a number of, of incidents being investigated. The timeline, the revelations that laws may have been broken started happening in late November 2021 and then started accelerating throughout December and January. And so we're, we're looking at about 16 incidents investigated by a civil servant and then 12 different incidents were investigated by the Metropolitan Police. So there was huge pressure on Boris Johnson and a a real concern that he could be removed by his own party in late January, early February. Uh, The war in Ukraine temporarily sort of changed the dynamic, but Boris Johnson's approval rating has taken a sort of serious toll uh, in the past four or five months. 
I think all of us remember the picture of the queen by herself at uh, at her at Prince Philip's funeral by herself. And this was sort of drawn. And these are the, the timelines you're talking about. What was decided today? There is a fine involved and it is a first for a sitting British prime minister, I understand. Yes, that, that's correct. Uh, uh, and it's also importantly, it's a prime minister, his wife and the chancellor of the exchequer, Rishi Sunak. So, you know, we're talking about very prominent people who have flouted their own rules that they established. And where I think it also becomes politically tricky for Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak is that the pandemic had affected everyone. I mean, every individual in the UK had to suffer in some shape or form from those restrictions. Uh, the example you're Queen having to grieve on her own, the allegation that one of those incidents I referred to happened the same evening or the, or the day before the Queen was grieving on her own was really a, a significant blow to the credibility of the Prime Minister. Uh, it's important that so far the Prime Minister has said that he would not resign. He's trying to minimize it, that he didn't realize that he was breaking the rules. The key question here is the political verdict. To what extent will the members of his own party decide that Boris Johnson has become too much of a liability? Arguably, he's had more lives than most cats, or he's a real Teflon prime minister so far. But this could be the scandal too many. I mean, I was there when he was uh, when he was mayor of London. Uh, I mean, he seems to be quite the chameleon and able, as you put put it out, to be to have a level of Teflon that we don't often see, uh, specifically in England, where politicians are are, are quite vulnerable at times to their gaffes. Uh, how has he managed to hold on? Do you think? Well, I think there's a there's a couple of elements. I mean, one is he still was able to command a very large victory in December 2019. I mean, he played a part, he was a real architect, I should say, in gaining a large majority. So that's number one. I think number two, uh, you know, there's an old proverb in, in, in England that he who wields a knife doesn't always wear down. So you also have to find uh, critical numbers of people within his own party who are ready to take a chance at trying to unseat him. And then you have to pretty much make sure that you can win that vote. So I think he's protected to a degree by that, by the fact that also this is crucial uh, one of the presumptive heir, Rishi Sunak, is himself now being uh, fine and therefore facing scrutiny. So I, I think he's protected by the fact that, yes, his approval rating is poor, but you also have to find someone who's willing to take the risk and challenge him. And, and you also have to have a belief amongst the Conservative Party members that they would be better off with someone else rather than him. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily evident yet for a large number of Conservative Party members. There aren't many members of his cabinet who have not been touched by scandal over the last uh, over the last few years. What does this say, though, about Boris Johnson, the leader, though, that he'd be caught out this way, uh, regardless of whether or not he, he didn't know that he was breaking the rules? There seemed to have been a flagrant disregard for the rules, uh, regardless, within the upper echelons, uh, within the cabinet of the Conservative Party, uh, of the government in England, in the UK. Well, I think what's important about this element here is... Part of the, the appeal that Boris Johnson was able to build specifically in the period after the, the, the Brexit vote was a sense that he was with all the common folk against the elites that wanted to keep um, Britain in the EU, EU despite the vote of the people. But I, I think this element of hypocrisy here that was being shown the fact that Boris Johnson and many people around him, and this is also, this is, you're important, you're, you're absolutely right to emphasize this, that this is not an isolated 
episode, that this was a culture of disregard of rules, uh, that this was a series of ethical malpractice amongst uh, Boris Johnson and the people around him, I, I think that it has really sort of hurt Boris Johnson amongst a lot of his electorate. And clearly and, and crucially, the sort of the voters, the, the normal traditional Labour voters that Boris Johnson was able to attract in December 2019 when he won his large mandate. I think there's been specifically disapproval amongst these voters in Northern England that traditionally had voted Labour. So it's not clear that they will remain with the Conservative Party when the next election happens, which will be no later than 2024. For the time being, Boris Johnson says he's staying put. Garrett Martin, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.